On today's show, we're chatting to James Mansfield, co-founder of premium meat and fish delivery service, Field and Flower. He started the business with his longtime friend, James Flower, in 2010, and has been on an extraordinary journey, starting with a single cow, learning butchery, and surviving a 1,500% growth boom in 2020. He's here to share his startup story. So great to have you on the show. How are you doing? How's business? Yeah, very well. Thanks for having me, Bex. Yeah, no, business is great. Thank you. Um, some challenges at the moment, but yeah, we've we've had a good couple of years. Yeah, you've had a storming couple of years. I remember reading about you in the papers because you, alongside some other subscription services, saw this massive boom prompted, I think, by lockdown. But then you seem to have sustained that growth. Tell me about the inception, uh, what you were doing before and what gave you the, the idea to launch something like this. We'd, we certainly looked at whether direct-to-consumer was growing, definitely, uh, but there weren't really many examples in the market. Um, there was Donald Russell and a few others, but there, was, there wasn't anybody sort of specifically doing what we did, so it was definitely a bit of a punt. The idea really was the fact that James Flowers Beef Farm was producing high-quality grass-fed beef, but it was going to market, so it was getting lost in the food chain. He wasn't realising a premium for the product. So we thought if we can sell direct to consumer and we can pay James's dad a bit more for the cattle, then everybody wins. Um, the, the money's going back to the farmer direct. We're paying a bit more and we can tell the story of the product being grass-fed, the field that it was raised in uh, and that story. And I think that really resonated with people. So, But ultimately, people needed to eat and people were eating beef mints and burgers and steaks and so we were kind of playing the percentages, I guess, um, in, in, in some ways. We, we knew that um, we were selling products that, pe- that lots of people in the UK eat. So I think that gets you off to a good start. And where did you start? So tell me what, what you did in the outset and we'll, we'll see how that then developed as the business evolved. We kept it really simple at the beginning. So it was let's um, buy or actually loan a beef animal from James's dad. Uh, we created 32 beef boxes and we sold them to friends and family. And there was no talk of subscription at that point. Uh, it was very much what do people think of the product? And we did a lot of that for the first couple of years, trying to understand the product Um and ultimately, there was a point that came where we had some excess beef in terms of the full quarter of the animals. So we thought, well, we need another route to market here. So actually, before subscription came, we were going to food festivals and using our full quarter beef to make burgers and selling burgers and some minute steaks. Uh, and that was that was great. And actually, you know, really exciting. There was better margin in that. And the kind of bright lights drew us towards... Um, building a, an events business for a short period we we got back from glastonbury 2011 having not had a good time there um and um we decided that we were really going to focus on online so what should the online um, e-commerce site look like and we decided that actually our customers decided because we had a few at that point whilst running the events was that they wanted to repeat order so we went to a food show at earl's court and a guy came up to us and we were just selling um, some of our, our product. And he said, I'd like to order a beef brisket, three kilos um, every, I think it was every four weeks at the time. Um, he became known as Billy Brisket and was a great, a great sort of advocate of the business for the first year. But our customers were saying, well, this is great product. And then, but I actually cook with beef mints every week for my family. So can you just set me up on direct debit and get this delivered to me every four weeks, two weeks? So that kind of led the way and we did lots of trying to understand 
how people use the products, the feedback that we were given kind of led us to subscription. And I think if we didn't have a product that people were cooking with regularly and repeat purchasing, then we wouldn't have decided to have a subscription business. But that was certainly something that um, the customer was telling us. So I'd say a big strategic moment was was post Glastonbury, uh, decided to get a new website built, um, bring a subscription functionality to the site. And that really then led us on, on the kind of e-commerce journey. Bless Billy Brisket. And what was so bad about that Glastonbury? Was that the horrifically muddy one? Um, I've tried to forget about it, but um, <laughs> we were, this is going to sound really naive, but we ended up in the dance area. Um, I think we were the only food vendor there and we really should have spotted it. But we got sent a map pre-Glastonbury, um, probably a week before saying this is where you're going to be. And it was a sort of pencil drawing with a cross. It's like a treasure map. And we hadn't really spotted that we were in the dance area, but we were about, uh, to know, 50 foot from a path. And yes, it was very wet, um, as you would expect of Glastonbury. But we watched hundreds, thousands of people walk past us not buying anything because um, we we're in the wrong area. And it taught us a real lesson. And we paid a lot to be on site. I think we had paid £20,000 for everything that we needed, you know, stock, staff, um the the uh the marquee the gas the elect every, it, so we kind of we learned a lesson really quickly there and um we'd actually had a really good v festival the year before but we'd only done two music festivals and we decided that actually it wasn't the focus of the business we wanted to grow an online business that's that's that was kind of apparent at the beginning but as i say we we got sort of led astray um but i think luckily we kind of stopped that pretty quickly that's interesting though because i think as as a food business, as an entrepreneur, you think that festivals are going to give you amazing exposure and will be really powerful for the brand. Yeah. But I like that you kind of learnt quickly that actually a lot of people at a festival off the heads, staggering around, are probably not going to remember you. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. They're not. Someone said to us, actually, really good advice, that you need to look at festivals like Glastonbury over a kind of five-year period. Um, you need to go there, you need to trade, you need to be in the right place, you need to take a view that you are going to have bad, bad festivals. So um, I think, you know, we could have done, um, we could have done very different if we had, if we'd gone and done some research as to where we were going to be. But we, were, we weren't paying a huge amount for our pitch, so. And can you tell me how the business has grown since that wholesale pivot to the subscription model, the, the, the delivery model? Um, how have you reached new customers? How quickly has the business grown? Mm-hmm. And what have been the kind of main catalysts for that growth? I would describe our business philosophy as slow and steady. And we didn't go out and do a big fundraise at the beginning. It took us five or six years to get to our first raise and our only raise. Um, We wanted to build a business um, with really good foundations and uh, we could see Abel and Cole and Riverford had done that over a long period of time. We wanted to hold on to our equity as well. I made no secret about that. So we we were taking a longer term view of how to grow the business. Um, We were really focused on, there were lots of moving parts as well, doing a D2C business. At the beginning, we were literally farming the beef all the way through to doing the sales, the customer service, the delivery. I mean, it was, it, we were spinning lots of plates, but ultimately we were taking that long-term view. I think the thing that help, helped Field and Flower grow was there was no silver bullet, but it was um, just quickly understanding, testing different channels and quickly understanding what was working, what was bringing the right customers in. So 
building our email list, we were signing customers up to subscription at food shows. That's what Flower and I did for the first four years of the business. Um, PR played a massive part in um, growing the business and we were doing lots of direct sales. Um, a big moment for us was bringing on board Stephen from um, Abel and Cole and he, he really started to transform the business into a digitally led customer acquisition business. Um, so yeah, we, we probably got five or six uh, customer acquisition channels that work really well for us. Um, but it's it's a challenge. You know, that's that's the challenge for any online business is, is managing customer acquisition costs, lifetime value, and ensuring that we're kind of fishing in the right pools for, for customers. But I think um, we got to a certain point where word of mouth then really starts to help because people are referring their friends into us. And when you say you became a digitally led customer acquisition business, mm. what does that mean? Does that mean you find customers through social media or you do kind of online hookups and partnerships with other brands yeah. and that's how you get people in? Explain for anyone who's kind of new to this whole world of customer mm. acquisition what that means and, and, and what channels have been most successful. Yeah, so we certainly benefited from as our email list, as I said. You know, that was something that we built ourselves up to... I think 30, 40,000 people quite early on. So we could, we could market that way. We began to do lots of um, social media advertising, PPC on Google. We have a platform on the site, which is called Mention Me, which is a refer a friend platform that really helps people refer customers to um, friends to, to, to Field and Flower. Uh, and then obviously PR, you know, plays a huge part. We've got an article from The Independent, I think 2013 for the best meat box. Um, and it still delivers a huge amount of traffic to the site. So there's huge value in having those those high quality links from um, press articles as well. So that, that's a bit of an overview. And James, you, you mentioned a little while ago that your approach to growth was slow and steady. Mm. And that that's why you chose not to raise a lot of investment. And when you did raise investment, it was quite a long way in. Mm. Can you tell me about um, that fundraising? I think it was a Crowdcube raise. Correct. And tell me about your approach, what went right, what went wrong, if anything, mm. and what you learned from that experience. Yeah, the theory was that we didn't want to accelerate our growth in the early days because we weren't we weren't set up to do that. And when you take people's money on board, you have to be responsible with that. We didn't do a, a fundraise until 2017. And that was when we felt comfortable that we got the business in a good place. We just posted a profit. Um, we could see how we could grow and we wanted to be responsible in, in taking other people's uh, money on board. So we decided that we had a really engaged audience at Field and Flower because of the subscription nature of the business. So we went to, we spoke to Cedars and we spoke to Crowdcube and we decided that Crowdcube had done a few more uh, food raises at the time. So we decided to go with those guys and they were really supportive and we had a really good experience of how you think about doing a fundraise. It was the first for us, as we say, we'd watched other businesses do it on on uh, Crowdcube and um, we we built a whole campaign to market to our customers, to friends, um, and then the wider audience. And it worked really well. We got 52% of our funds came from customers, which was great. And we raised 877,000 in, um, we were on site, I think for six weeks. And um, we used the funds to, to really kind of accelerate growth, but also to bring in some experts into the business, which was, was gonna be really important to support that growth. So. It was a really tough period to, grow, to to go and do that fundraise. It was running the business in the evening, doing the fundraise in the day, and a huge amount of pressure because if you don't raise the target amount, then you don't get a penny. Um, so 
we're also obviously um, having to talk about the business, the financials. We had competitors investing in us, um, so it was um, it was a challenge, but it was really positive. We were really thankful that we um, we got through it, and um, it was a very positive experience. And it, it really was fundamental in how, where the business is today. You had competitors um, investing in you. What? Mm. Yeah, well, you, the minimum amount is ten pounds um, that you could invest in our fundraise. So um, we could see people in other businesses had gone on and um, invested ten pounds, and the, the benefit of that is that you get you, sh- you can get access to financial information that we were trying to give um, for, for serious investors, and then they were going to get investor updates as well, which they still do. We still send our quarterly investor updates. So, um, but that's part and parcel of fundraising and part of parcel of. Of, of business I think it's a very competitive sector I'm so naive I wouldn't have even thought that would happen but of course then you get kind of early access to all these numbers why wouldn't you try and have a sneaky peek if you can mm. um, and on that point about it being a competitive sector tell me how competitive is it um, you mentioned a couple um, of like long-standing rivals but there are lots of new players coming into this space do you see yourself as competing with the recipe boxes? Talk to me about rivalry. Yeah, well, we're really competitive. Um, so, you know, we, we we definitely have a look at what's going on all the time. And um, we were really surprised when the recipe boxes turned up. Um, we were at a food show. Flower and I were stood behind the table selling our subscription service and Gusto turned up next door. And we're like, who are these guys? You know, where's this come from? Um, recipe boxes. We thought that was just kind of... Scandinavia, um, we, you know, obviously have a very different proposition to them. I think that's the, the first point. Recipe boxes are obviously designed for people that are short on time, uh, that want to, don't want the waste and want to cook quickly um, and, and follow recipes. And I think our, well, we know that our customers are very different. They want to cook from scratch. Um, they want good quality ingredients. They want fewer inch chicken, grass fed beef, etc. But they, they ultimately, um, I think, I've got different motivations in the kitchen. Um, so I think we've got a very different set of customers. Or I know we do. Um, our, our real competitor is the supermarket. Um, we are taking customers from the supermarkets, um, but you know, that's where we'd also lose a customer is, is back to a Waitrose or a Sainsbury's. So there are competitors, really. Our sector, in terms of just pure meat delivered to home, is really small. Um, there's, not, there's not many of us um, here anymore so yeah i'd say that's that's an overview of competitors really and you say that you sometimes lose people back to the supermarkets um does price point play into that and i'm asking that because as we're doing this interview there's a whole cost of living crisis in the news every day and there's fears that a lot of people are just not going to have much disposable income yeah so so talk to me about price point how you compete um with the supermarkets um knowing that you're a premium offering, how, how do you ensure that you maintain your margin, yet you're not too expensive for customers, yet you're reassuringly expensive? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, when we began, we had um, fairly heavy premium on the product because we were very small um, and didn't have any kind of scale. Um, and um, we've, we've managed to kind of, I guess, position ourselves now as competitive with the equivalent product um, if it's there and on the supermarket shelf. Um, but that's just come over years of working at trying to grow the business, working with our suppliers, making sure that 
we can pass a premium on to our customers in certain categories. Um, we do price check against a Sainsbury's and a Waitrose and we're often a similar price, um, some under, some slightly over, but we know that we need to compete there where we can. But equally, we recognize that our job as a business is to explain to customers that the product has got traceability, what the, that the animal hasn't been given antibiotics, that we're treating our farmers fairly. We've got long long-standing relationships with many of our farmers years and years really and that's the way that you can you can obviously charge slightly more for the product and we, we explain that that's being passed back to the farmer i think the benefit of field and flowers also on pricing is also that we're, we've got a short supply chain so with the products not passing through lots of hands it's going from farm to butcher to customer essentially and um that really benefits us in being able to compete on price um but you're absolutely right. You know, we want to be reassuringly expensive um, in some regards because um, meat has become almost a commodity product um, in the supermarkets and we shouldn't be able to buy a chicken for a pound or, or two pounds. It's just, um, it's not right. So it's back to the earlier point. We want to go back to saying this is great quality meat, um, but, you know, it's not something that should be eaten every night of the week, really. And um, you said that you and the other James learnt butchery, basically, so that you could manage every aspect of the business in the early days. How did you learn it? And how important was that education in terms of being a better entrepreneur and running a better meat business? We understood early on that we really needed to know our product. Flower understood the animal in the field um, and how to rear that to great quality, but we um, we weren't butchers ourselves, so we had a friend that um, was our first butcher, Andy. Uh, he now runs um, Somerset Charcuterie. He taught us really the art of butchery. I mean, he was he was definitely leading the way, and it stood us in such good stead today because when we go in um, talk to our butchers um, and we talk to our farmers, we're always talking about carcass balance um, and buying in natural proportions and making it as sustainable as possible, so there isn't wastage. Um, so it was, a, it was a great learning curve um, early on and certainly missed those days of being stood around the butchery block um, and creating burgers that you knew someone was tasting you know, the next day. It was, it was a really fun time. And where is Field and Flower going to go from here? Because you, you've talked about the slow and steady growth model and also because what you're selling is a premium product, this is a kind of slow, sustainable product. The idea of you becoming a mass market brand doesn't quite feel like it works so so what, what are your growth plans how big could you get and are there limits on how big you could get it's a question we get asked quite a lot i mean there's a there is a a big addressable market available in in the uk because of the type of product that we're selling which as i said is is staples it's beef mint our top sellers are beef mints chicken breasts whole chicken sausages bacon so there's lots of people cooking those products eating those products every week um, we haven't got big marketing budgets, so it's not, and we, we haven't done any big fundraisers. So we haven't got that that kind of capital to go and deploy and, and really try and eat into market share. We're just saying, ultimately, this slow and steady approach, albeit we, you know, we went from, I think, £32,000 sales in our first year to £13.2 million in our last financial year. So we, we would consider that good growth. Um, but we, we think there's a huge market for what we're doing. Um, we just need more people to know about the, the business and the brand. Uh, and we'll, you know, we continue to use the channels of communication that we've got to, to continue to grow the business. We don't want 
to accelerate growth too fast. Like we think we need to be really careful about our growth, but we will continue to grow. Um, and we, we feel that the business can get up to 50 million, 75 million for sure in sales. Um, I think we were fairly responsible with that. And that certainly showed in um, getting to profit in it over the last couple of years. That's smart. You don't buy outright just in case it's like a temporary blip. You, um, you only invest what you'll actually end up getting back. Um, that's really interesting. And, and tell me then, James, so in the history, in the 12 year history of Field and Flower, what's the biggest mistake that you guys have made? And what did you learn from it? I mean, luckily, we haven't made any that are so catastrophic that we're not here anymore. I think the biggest mistake that we've made is not trusting early on that we could outsource and work with a butchery partner. I think we were we were certainly butchering for, as I said, a couple of couple of years too long, probably. Um, and whilst it was it was great to kind of have that control, I think looking back, we might be we might be a couple of years ahead if we had we'd let go of that. But um, we we were very worried about letting go at the time because we knew how important quality was. Um, so we um, I think that was that's probably the thing that I look back and think if we could change one thing it would probably be that and how hard has it been to evolve with the growth of the business because I presume that your role has changed dramatically over the years um, in some ways in a positive way in some ways you, you mentioned you missed the butcher's block um, how tricky has it been to make sure that your skills keep pace with what the business needs yeah I mean look, business is really really tough and I tell my health to anyone starting out now um, or, or 10 years in or 30 years in, I think you have to try and evolve and you have to realize what you're good at uh, and what you're not good at, more importantly. And we try and hire people that are better than us and that are specialists in areas. And that's that's certainly absolutely key, you know, understanding what, um, what, what your key skills are. So I think ultimately trying to grow the business um, by yourself, thinking that you can do everything isn't, isn't the right answer so i would say um early on it's really important to make sure the website's seo friendly we didn't do that um so we spent a lot of time trying to improve the search functionality on 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 the website i'd say make sure that you don't spend too much money on a website um it's there's a huge variance from what I can see when we look at replatforming or where, even when we were, we were starting out looking at websites, there are low cost options that can do an awful lot that we didn't realize at the beginning. So I'd say um, be smart with, with what platform you choose, make sure that you can scale with it, but don't, don't spend too much money on that. Don't let your website be a money pit. That's great advice. James, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've loved talking to you and I can't wait to see where the business goes from here. Yeah, thanks, Beck. It's been great talking. Many thanks to James. And a little reminder that Sound Advice is brought to you by Sage. Over 1 million British businesses use Sage's award-winning software to manage the ins and outs of startup life. So if you want to boss your finances, invoicing and cash flow, take a look at Sage Accounting.